Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. Hi, this is the voice of BattleBots, Mark Biro. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Hello, my name is Matt Simon. I'm a science writer at Wired Magazine and author of the new book, The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hi, this is Linda Godfrey, author of American Monsters. Hello, my name is Robert Salas. I'm the author of Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, my name is Bob Luca. And my name is Betty Andreessen Luca. Hi, this is Jesse Proofus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Positive Autistic. I'm Jeremiah Bomek, the producer of The Reel of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World's Most Haunted House. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com. There's travel in your future when you hit level 30 and you get your travel form. You will never be a rogue, always healing and crying about your class. Hunter! You will want every single weapon in the entire freaking game. You don't need anything but your pet cinnamon scatter shot and then bang death. Me! You think you're almighty with your epic staff with arcane power and a Zandalarian hero trunk. The only problems will be ripped to shreds and you will be nerfed by every Someone without any kind of skill Breach. You think you're a shadow priest But you will be forced to be a healbot in your raid You should prepare to jump off a cliff When suddenly everything is your fault Drawman. You are the most overpowered class All you have to do is cast Rock Shock to win Remember to keep reincarnation up And it will take ten alliance shots to take you down That's the world of work that you play that's the world of Warcraft that you played. That's the world of Warcraft that I played. That's the world of Warcraft that you played. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the world of Warcraft that you played. Well, you think you have weak skills because you raid all day and night, or you have finally grinded to Grand Marshal or to High Warlord, and you may have epic gear so you can brag to all your friends that you spent too much time playing the stupid time-consuming game. Just because you have to trigger only shows that you have no life and it will be useless in the upcoming expansion pack. So I suggest you go outside and ride your bike off in a pool or play with kittens so you get away and do protective work. Oh, was I? Warrior! You might have incredible strength and you can probably pwn somebody's face. But you are worthless without a priest. You are destined.
and to rape for all your life. You strike fear into the hearts of the horde, simply using your hammer and bubbles. You think that you are a warrior, but you will always be that guy who never heals. You should be able to kill someone with a 10,000 damage shadow bolt crit. If I were you, I'd join a guild and always raid. Never, 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 never leave my house again. That's the world of Warcraft that you play. That's the world of Warcraft that you play. That's the world of Warcraft that you play. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the world of Warcraft that you play. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the world of Warcraft that you play. Deep within the molten core of a dying star. From the snow-capped mountaintops of Middle Earth, orbiting above the Earth in a stolen alien spacecraft, the Graveyard Shift Online Radio Talk Show. Now, strap on your seatbelt, get ready to kneel, true believers, because here's your host, Emmy. Hey there, everybody in Radio Land. How's everybody doing in Radio Land? My name is Emmy, and you are listening to the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show, the single greatest talk show that ever has been, is, or ever will be, right here on blogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today is October 29th, 2016, only two days away from ooh, Halloween. This is so, so scary. This is Season 7, Episode 2, Matt, Simon, and Glyphotontales Under a Tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. No, really. Uh, that would actually be a really bad idea, <laughs> as you will hear why in this episode. No, really. All kidding aside, um, in this episode, I will be airing the interview I had with the illustrious Matt Simon, Wired Wired Magazine columnist and author of The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar, which is a book about all of really curious critters and animals who have, through evolution, found so many different ways to survive in so many different settings and natural what have yous. And um it was a rather fascinating interview. I I really uh, enjoyed it. I had we both had fun uh talking about it. It was one of the subjects that I actually do have uh quite a lot of knowledge about. In fact, uh, Matt uh, Matt didn't know that I knew about the subject before I I spoke with him and uh which actually helped quite a bit because um at the time, you know, uh, whenever we do these shows, I typically get a reading copy, you know, before we do the show. But unfortunately, you know, because of the mail, you know, how the post service goes, post office goes, um, you don't always get it, the books in time. So unfortunately, I didn't get the book in time. But it, it was okay because I did my homework and I did some research 
on some of the stuff that he did in his book or wrote about in his book. And I also knew a lot of the subject matter, so it helped quite a bit. But I have the book right now. It's right here. See? And I am considering giving this to one of our fans, possibly. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I may actually keep it myself. <laughs> um, anyway, I'll be playing that later. But before I do, I want to welcome everybody to the show and tell you that we are back in, in force. I will be doing this every week, uh, Saturday evenings at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And, of course, also through during the week, I will be doing our live video segment on the new network, bidchat.com slash graveyard shift. And um, I'm sure those of you that have been watching us there, um, you probably uh, have been seeing us and, and watching how uh, we do our what's called the mobile Q&A segment. In fact, I'm going to see if I can try and um, and broadcast there. Let me see if I can do this. I might not be able to. I'm going to try. And uh, hopefully you guys won't hear this audio. <laughs> I've actually not tried this before. I have not tried um, broadcasting on BidChat at the same time while broadcasting on Blog Talk. But I, I will do what I can. Let's see what happens. So while I am doing that, guys, I want to say that, you know, Halloween is right around the corner. And all of you guys that have kids just like we do. It's that time of year when your little tykes get dressed up in their different costumes and what have you and and uh, go trick-or-treating. And you know what? I know this is going to sound really corny, but please, guys, please make sure that, you know, you, you, you're safe. You do the safety thing and make sure that, you know, um, the kids, you know, don't go anywhere without you, please. Oh. I was going to say give me a second Okay I've got to hold on Let's see video source uh, I guess that Trying to get on Here let me see This is weird because Now I hear myself In my Headphones Okay Oh I don't want to Okay hold on here Sorry guys I'm also broadcasting on VidChat so <laughs> it's it's kind of weird here. By the way, if you're on the Blog Talk show and you want to see what I'm doing, hold on here. Take snapshot. Boom. There we go. Okay. Reverb shift. <laughs> Live broadcast feed. Go to Blog Talk. Radio. Oh, I can't put that apparently. Talk radio. There you go. Okay. See what happens. Okay. You will be live now. All right. Well, hopefully um, this will still work. Let's find out. Can you guys still hear me? I hope you can still. Uh oh. Oh no. Oh. Something happened. Oh, now I'm live on BitChat. Okay. And am I... Can you guys hear me here? Yes. Hello. Yes, you can still hear me. Okay. I think we're still okay. So I am live on BitChat. Hi, BitChat audience. And I'm also live on Blog Talk Radio. (laughs) 
I knew I was going to be able to do this at the same time. Okay, so now for our bid chat viewers, hold on, Blog Talk Radio guys. I'll, I'll be with you in a second. For our bid chat viewers, my name is Emmy. I'm broadcasting live on blogtalkradio.com right now, the Graveyard Shifts audio version of, of the show. And I'm going to be uh, showing the interview with Matt Simon, wired columnist and author of The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar. And, and bid chat viewers, you can actually see this. The Blog Talk Radio people can't see it because it's audio. But here's the book. Okay, Blog Talk Radio guys, don't, don't feel left out. Don't worry. The, you can actually see a screenshot. But here's the book. Oh, there you go. Oh, I moved. But anyway, it's, uh, it's available at most major bookstores and online at Amazon.com or any other place that sells books, most, more than likely. Anyway, um, this is the first time I've actually joint broadcasted before. I've never actually broadcasted on BidChat and on, um, on Blog Talk Radio. So this is going to be very interesting. I don't know how this is going to work or even if it will work. Now, I will say this. For the BidChat audience, you guys will not be able to uh, hear – oops really low you guys will actually not sorry for our bid chat audience you guys will not be able to hear the interview with matt simon because it'll be playing on the blog talk site so this is what my my recommendation is to open a new window open a new browser window and then go to blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift that's blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift put it on mute for right now because if not you're going to hear echoing and then when I get to the part that I play the interview, switch over, and then you'll be able to hear the entire interview. So let's do it that way for right now. And by the way, for our Blog Talk Radio listeners, if you want to see the live feed, go open a new browser window and go to bidchat.com. And I think I'm on bidchat.com slash graveyard shift, or I should be on the spotlight section. If you go to bidchat.com's main website or on the app on the main page, I should be under the spotlight or featured um, show links there. And then you guys can just go there, click on the open a new window and then see me there. So there you go. Hopefully that'll work. Okay. So here we go. Uh, okay. This should be interesting guys. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do this. Um, okay. So this is usually the part of the show where I, um, uh, talk about the news and whatnot. This is kind of throwing me off a little bit. So let's see if I can do this. Um, okay. <laughs> this is so weird. Ah, I'm trying to do this at the same time. This is really throwing me off. Okay. All right. So that song that you heard me play in the very beginning, those of you that were watching from the very, or listening rather from the very beginning, was a song that has been around for quite a while since vanilla world of warcraft or vanilla wow and it's called that's the world of warcraft that you play and it's by a gentleman named ian Beck beckman and um actually what a lot of people don't realize is that that song is actually a parody of the weird al yankovic song that's the horoscope for today so i'll i'll try playing it again later i mean people have already heard it so it's probably like eh, i don't want to hear it again but uh, the reason I played that is because, well, you know, I'm a big, for those of you that know me, I'm a huge World of Warcraft fan, and I've been playing Legion pretty a lot. <laughs> I've had to kind of stop for a little while to kind of, you know, get busy and get to work. But um, there is a lot of stuff going on in WoW. I think with this new Legion uh, expansion, they finally, finally, finally hit 
on the golden goose, you know. And by the way, if anybody wants to call in the show, thank you for the likes, bid chat audience. If anybody wants to call in on the show, all you have to do is call area code 347-237-5187. That's area code 347-237-5187. Once again, any new viewers on our bid chat live feed, if you want to listen in, to the interview with Matt Simon, the Wired journalist, Matt Simon, that I'm going to be playing later in the show, what I would recommend you do is open a new brow- a new window, a new browser window. Go to blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift. Mute it for now, and then when I get to the – obviously, turn it back on and then mute this one or whichever one you want because you won't be able to hear the interview on the bid chat um, live feed because it's on the other one. Okay, anyway, moving on. So – World of Warcraft. <laughs> um, you know, Legion has been an absolute, just gigantic improvement from previous expansions. If I, if someone asked me what was my absolute, like my one, like top three favorite expansions of World of Warcraft since it first came out, I've answered this before. I would say number three, probably Mists of Pandaria. Number two. Uh, boy, Wrath of the Lich King, number one, and a lot of you are going to get mad about this, number one favorite expansion ever. Oh, man, guys, this is a tough one. I want to say a tie between Burning Crusade and Cataclysm. And before you yell at me and throw fire on me and toss me to the Wicker Man, the reason I say that is because Burning Crusade was really the first major expansion in the game, okay? We were introduced to an entirely new world. There was so much new content. It was, like, staggering. And the level cap was also pretty high. I can't remember. The, I think I want to say 65 or 70. I'm not sure I remember. And uh, it's been a long time. And um, not only that, there were new dungeons. There were... There were so many areas to explore, so much. There was actual factions that you could get exalted with. Now, granted, there were factions you could still get exalted with in Vanilla WoW, but this one gave you even more so. And um, now, you know, of course, it had its flaws, of course, like you do with any game, really. But um, overall, I would say Burning Crusade really felt like it had that, you know, old... World of Warcraft vanilla feel to it, but with some new stuff added on. And and the lore also was a ma- thank you for the likes. The lore was also a major, major player in what I feel makes it one of if not the best, at the very least one of the best. Now, with Cataclysm, the reason I tied it with Burning Crusade was because Cataclysm was absolutely world-changing. Because if you remember, up to that point, WoW had this very dated look. Even now, really, if you complain, thank you for the likes, even now if you compare it with other games that are out, the graphics are really not that fantastic. I mean, yes, they're good, but if you compare it, like, for example, Skyrim or Dark Souls or, you know, God of War or, I don't know, Gears of War, whatever, Gears of War, Call of Duty, whatever you want. It's now, young know, granted, okay, I, yes, I realize that the game is very stylized, that it has a very thematic look to it, and that's fine. That's all well and good. But the point of the fact is 
that if you compare just by itself the quality of the game, it's very, very different and very, you know, I don't want to say substandard, but it's not as high quality as you would expect. And, you know, listen, that's nothing against Blizzard, okay? I love the game. I think the qual- I love the video quality, the graphics quality, rather. I have nothing against it. Thank you for the like. Um, but anyway, you know, it had to, they had to do something. And it was either they completely t- get rid of the game and do a brand new revamp, a brand new reboot like you have seen before, or they add something new. And what Blizzard did with Cataclysm was a game changer because up to that point, no, there weren't any games that came out that did something that severe. I mean, there were so many people, so many gamers that were so accustomed to, for example, the way the Barons looked, the way Strangothorn Vale looked, the way, you know, just, um, uh, excuse me, um, the starting alliance area, the uh, <laughs> Elwyn Forest, excuse me, looked. And, you know, the way that they changed the noob uh, starting zones so that it was more noob friendly really kind of set the bar. And, and actually, you could start seeing how the game was evolving at that point. And, you know, also, it wasn't until then that we started getting world events. Now, okay, let me back up a little bit. We were getting world events before, but not with as much frequency as we were getting them with Cataclysm, okay? Excuse me. So then, you know, that by itself was was pretty major. I loved everything about Cataclysm. I loved how it looked. I loved it. You know, it felt like a brand new game even though it was wow even though it was world of warcraft even though i went to the barons as a low-level character and i was doing the same baron quests there were new quests there and there was new content in the barons and i felt like i was in a whole new other continent so you know that was pretty awesome and 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 i feel cataclysm you know deserves its place up there i mean as much as i'm talking about it thank you for the like uh, possibly um, it needs <laughs> to be up there more than uh, Burning Crusade, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I That's why I say they're tied. So, talking again about World of Warcraft, um, how many of you guys out there have uh, gotten to level 110? I'm sure a lot of you have. Um, really, level caps at this point in games are a moot point because I know people that can get to level caps first day they start which is insane if you think about it because i mean it took me about a while it took me a, a several weeks to get uh, almost a month to get to level 10 110 because you know i have a family i have kids i have to take care of i don't have time to play the game all day but um you know hey look if you if you do that's great you know if you have your time to do that that's wonderful good for you but you know i think setting a level cap at this point it's not what people – it's not like a major thing that people strive for. It used to be like in the Vanilla WoW days. Even in the Burning Crusade days, people strived to hit that level cap because you got so many award, so many rewards for it. And, you know, like I remember – I think it was in Burning Crusade that Druids actually got flight. And um, if I remember correctly, and, you know, just seeing when you hit – I 
think it was level 60. I'm not 100% sure I remember, but I want to say it was level 60 or 55 or something like that, that when you hit that, you started to be able to fly. And I'll never forget the first time that I saw that. I was just like, wow, that's so amazing. I could fly now, you know, as a care. I don't need a mount. I can actually just fly without flight paths. So that by itself, being able to control where you were able to go in the game. I know to some people now it seems like, so what, Emmy? I could do that now. Well, it wasn't always like that, guys. You actually had to use flight paths before. You didn't always, you know, you weren't always able to actually control where you went. So anyway, that in itself. Now, there's an anniversary coming up for Blizzard. Diablo's 20th anniversary event is coming up between January 4th and the 10th of 2017. They're going to have a special Diablo 20th anniversary event. And the event is going to allow players to earn special Diablo-themed items, including 12-string guitar toy that plays that, you know, special Diablo theme a super large Horadric satchel bag that's going to expand your inventory space and, you know, several other stuff. So, but how are you going to earn it? Well, um, it's, it's not like <laughs> there's, they haven't exactly said it yet. At least I don't think so. But apparently there's a, a YouTube user that's believed that he cracked the code. And not only that, thank you for the like, excuse me. He also thinks he may have found, a secret cow level. Now, for anyone that's ever been with Blizzard for a long time, you know about the secret cow level. For the uninitiated, the secret cow level is a, a secret level <laughs> in Diablo 2 where you collect certain certain things in the game and when you when you unlock it or when you activate the item, it takes you to this secret level where you are attacked by killer cows. Now, um, in Diablo 2, Blizzard actually added a method to create this special portal, okay? And um, there was even an extra, you know, like a really hard cow king final boss. So what ends up happening is there's the achievement WoW players will be able to unlock for taking part in the Diablo 20th anniversary event includes the text there is no cow level. So uh, now the YouTube user found a number of strange spells, though. He found one named Moo, one titled the secret cow level. Thank you for the like. And of course, one named summon portal to cow level. Now in the video, in fact, I'm going to, I'm going to share it on my, um, on the Twitter, on our Twitter feed. And for those of you that don't know, um, our, we have our Twitter feed. It's um, Emmy Shift Show. Once again, if you, you know, if you want to look at it and you don't want to, I mean, like you don't know how to do this, obviously. I'm not in, trying to insult your intelligence, but you can open a new window and open it there. But anyway, I just um, shared it with you guys and you can hear more, read more about it. So, uh, of course, Blizzard is going to talk more about this in another uh during, I'm sure they'll mention it during BlizzCon, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to hear more about it then. So, uh, of course, you guys have seen the new Nintendo Switch trailer, and I'm sure you've heard about the new um, Breath of the Wild uh, you know, game that's coming out. So I'm really looking forward to that. 
And, uh, you know, it's not going to be a reboot of Zelda. I know a lot of people, I don't know why they're starting this, this rumor, but apparently some people are saying that, oh, it's just going to be a, a reboot of something else. It's not going to be a reboot, guys. It's a completely new game. Thank you for the like. It's going to be a, um, a new Zelda game. It's going to be open world, which is something that's never been done in Zelda before, except in Ocarina of Time and in future games. Yes, you, there were certain zones that as Link, you could actually move around and, and explore to a certain extent. But this is the first time in a Zelda game that you're going to actually be able to go throughout the entire world. And um, like, you can go straight to the final boss if you want to. Thank you for the like. You can go straight to the final boss of the game if you wanted to at the very first time you open you do the game now i don't know exactly what happens when that when you do that because i mean they they haven't really gotten to that point yet to to say the information but if that's what something you wanted to do appear according to the information that's out right now you could do that so we will we will see um we will see what happened what happens with that and speaking of reboot did you know that there's going to be a rambo film reboot it yes, it really is. It's happening. It's, no, I can't say Adrian. That's not Rambo. That's uh, that's Rocky. Sorry. So, um, basically, in this insane nostalgia fix that we've been getting into lately, that's what's happening. And um, based on the nineteen, hold on a second. Let's see if I can get it right here. Thr is reporting that plans for a Rambo movie reboot have been solidified. It's right now it's it's titled, thank you for the like, Rambo New Blood. It has the same name as the previously planned television series. Now, the film, here's the here's here's the kicker, guys. The film will not feature Stallone returning to the role. It's going to feature for the first time a new actor as Rambo. Now, according to the new report, New Image Millennium Films is approaching it as a sort of James Bond figure, maybe implying that an entire new series is being planned. Now, Ariel Vraman, Vraman, sorry, uh, the one who's behind Criminal, signed on to direct a film, and it's being written by newcomer Brooks McLaren, who has three films in various stages of development. Now, who knows who's going to be Rambo? I mean, it could be anybody. Uh, and And really... This is going to be a tough one to swallow for the fans, I think, because if there's any any character that's more iconic than Rambo, there's very few. I mean, Rambo's been around for a very long time, and, you know, it's our generation. He's one of the superheroes of our generation, you know. it's like He's up there with Rocky. He's up there with, you know, Hulk Hogan and, and uh, you know – Maverick from Top Gun. Well, although even though he was in one movie, but he's still he was a hero to to us kids of the eighties and nineties. And you know, look, it, it had to happen at some point. You know, you're gonna get to a point where the same guy cannot play the same part for so long. Look at what happened with Wolverine. You know, um, Hugh Jackman is Wolverine. He always will be Wolverine for me, and it'll be very difficult for me to see a different person playing that part. But but it has to happen, and I think it couldn't come to an end in a more much more dignified, more honorable way than letting him play the older part of Wolverine Logan in the movie Logan. 
So we'll see how that goes. So anyway, um, what I'm going to do is, let me see, we've got, yeah, I think what I'm going to do is go ahead and play the interview right now. And then when I get back, if I can, if I have time, I'll do more news. Um, Obviously, I didn't do any paranormal news right now. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. But, um, you know, before I do that, I just wanted to do this one piece of news. Unfortunately, it's not happy news. It's something that I feel very strongly about, and it's not been covered in the mainstream media. And that's, of course, the protest of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Normally, I don't get this um, political on my show. I sometimes do stuff that is political, but there are times that I just can't ignore certain things. And this is one of those things. You know, police arrested 141 people at a protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota. Um, They used pepper spray against the protesters. They used dogs. They manhandled them. They threw them to the ground. There were two incidents of shots fired late this afternoon and evening. One occurred along Highway 1806 near what is known as the Backwater Bridge north of the main camp, and one person is in custody. A protester along the front line on Highway 1806 reportedly also fired three rounds near officers. No one was injured, and the protester was taken into custody. Three protesters had used devices to attach themselves to objects, presumably so they could not be moved from the site. And, um, you know, you're going to get this spun so many different ways. They don't say what, you know, they say that the protesters made shots. I saw the video myself. I didn't see any protesters doing anything. What I did see was police officers in SWAT in SWAT team attire with assault rifles. I saw, excuse me, um, Hummer vehicles with, like they look like tanks against these people and these people are just trying to protect their land and their water. I mean, these are, thank you for the likes. These are native Americans that have been there for generations and generations right before we've been here. And all they're trying to do is have access to clean water and their land. And, you know, here's the police office, sirs and all these people in North Dakota just, running over them, just trampling over their rights. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, and this isn't about being a Democrat or Republican, guys. This is not about being, you know, an, an anarchist or whatever. This has nothing to do with that. This is about us being human beings, helping out a fellow human being. And you know what? I know that there are cops out there that are trying to do the right thing. And I know there are good cops out there, but the system itself is broken. The entire system itself is broken, and it needs to be fixed, Whatever, however that needs to come about. And obviously, it does not need to come about in a violent way. Um, it needs to come out peacefully. It needs to happen from within, from people that want change and want it to happen. And I know that there are people out there that want that. You know, we have too many corrupt people in power that are going and 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 messing up those of us that are not in power and it needs to stop so anyway um that's that and i'm gonna stop there so if you want to help um i think they have a facebook page and um i know our friends over at the authority smashing hour um those of you that don't know we have uh friends that do a show on blog talk radio called the authority smashing hour And um, they're always reporting on stuff like this. So uh, if you want to help them out, you know, you want to listen to or check them out on Facebook. Now, I will say just fair warning, they are full on anarchy uh, and all that stuff. So if you're not into that, you know, buyer beware. 
But the only the reason I mention them is because I have good friends that do that show, and they, you know what? For all the stuff that we disagree on, uh, there are certain things that that I support them on, and the protesting this pipeline is one of them. And um, anyway, uh, although I I'm not gonna say officially that they that they that that's an issue for them because I'm not I don't represent them specifically, but I know that they are you know for freedom. And they're for people having rights over authority figures. So there you go. All right. So without any further ado, uh, I'm going to go ahead and play this interview with between myself and Mr. Matt Simon. Uh, Matt is a Wired magazine journalist, and he is um, a uh, an author for the Wasp of the Brainwashed the Caterpillar. Now, before I do this, now I'm going to be doing something to kind of help out our blog, or excuse me, our bid chat audience. Once again, Bid Chat audience, I want to welcome all of you guys that are just tuning in, and I can see that we have a pretty big crowd. Hi, everybody. It's, I'm definitely going to start doing this from now on because this is awesome. I cannot believe that many people are watching. Um, anyway, if the people in Bid Chat want to listen to the Matt Simon interview, all you have to do is open a new browser window and go to blogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift and it'll, you know, obviously open up and then you can either mute the bidchat.com tab by right, you know, by, well, however you want to do it, you can right click on, on the tab itself and choose mute tab or whatever. I don't know, however you want to do it. I mean, I'm sure there must be a volume control on here somewhere and then just switch back later. Okay. So I'm going to give the bid chat audience a chance to do that. I'm going to go on break. When I get back, I'm going to play the uh, Matt Simon interview. So this is Emmy from the Graveyard Shift, and I- I'll be right back, guys. Put your warm feet on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Emmy. Why the hell does he always say that word illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, no. Okay, um... We'll, uh, we'll, we'll be right back. Oh.
Graveyard Shift Talk Show. As promised, I have the illustrious Matt Simon on the line here, author of The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar. How you doing, Mr. Simon? Oh, not too bad. How about yourself? I'm doing good, thank you. Is it okay if I call you, Matt? Would that be all right? Absolutely. Wonderful. So, um, first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, to go ahead and have this interview with us. We're always uh, very happy to, to talk to journalists, and especially uh, journalists that have uh, such extremely interesting books like this one. Now, you know, before I get started, guys, I want you to understand that, you know, Matt is a pretty talented guy. I mean, other than, you know, of course, writing for Wired.com, uh, Matt is did this book called The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar, Evolution's Most Unbelievable Solutions to Life's uh, Biggest Problems. And um, Matt, can you can you tell us a little bit before we get into the book, can you give us a, a little kind of bio about yourself? You know, how did you come to be with Wired and, and really how did you get started on this book? Yeah, so uh, interesting story about getting to Wired. I think I took a rather untraditional track here. Um, before I worked at Wired, I worked at a dental marketing firm as a copy editor, and a dental marketing firm is exactly what you think. It is marketing just for dentists. I went from there to Wired, which is a bit of a leap, I grant that, um, but I'm much happier now. I will, I will make that very clear. Um, <laughs> this, this book came about from a column that I did for a couple of years called Absurd Creature of the Week in which I would call a scientist or two every week to specialize in this very obscure, very interesting kind of creature. Um, and that column is no longer going, but we're still doing a weekly show called Absurd Creatures that appears on Mondays on Wired.com. But the, the book certainly grew out of that original Absurd Creature of the Week column. Oh, wow. Well, now, now you weren't kidding. That's definitely untraditional. So you went from wiring of the teeth to wired the magazine. Exactly. Well, so luckily I didn't have to wire the teeth myself. That is the upside. Oh, well, that's good. See, yeah. Because I was, was going to ask you, I've been having this problem in my molars. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> so, so this is really cool. So, I mean, you know, of course, in the show, uh, we talk about all kinds of strange and unusual things, and and we delve into all areas of it, whether it be. Uh, you know, the tiny little uh, things that you may not necessarily think are paranormal or strange to what has been coined by the amazing legend uh, Art Bell as high strangeness. And this subject that you delve into really kind of transcends that subject and gets into really the nature science uh, field because you're you're dealing here with things that really are happening in nature. Tell me a little bit about your book. And um, or tell the audience really. I obviously already know about hmm. it. And tell us why specifically did you choose to highlight evolutionary milestones and and uh, adaptations in nature? Yeah. So my agent and I approached it thinking this is a really good opportunity for me to put together almost an introduction to evolution for people who may not understand it um, because of public high schools not exactly diving too deep into evolution a lot of times. Um, framing it as these creatures' problems to certain, excuse me, these creatures' solutions to certain problems, I think is an interesting way to go about it. And in the book, we kind of split them up into different sections of this section has creatures that need to be able to eat more, or this section is creatures that need to be able to find 
shelter uh, because we humans are not the only one with that pursuit. Um, but framing that in, the, in that way really, I think, differentiates the book from the column because it kind of ties all these creatures together in this grand narrative that is life on Earth. And the way that evolution has produced all these creatures over the course of three and a half billion years. Right, you know that's that's true, and and you know what's amazing to me is that some of now I don't um some of the things that we've been finding in science are actually very recent, and we didn't even know that they were happening. Like you know, ladies and gentlemen, this book is really fascinating because uh, Matt talks about all kinds of animals that have adapted themselves to all sorts of environments. Uh, for example, he talks about uh, ants, just ants like you would see anywhere else that are actually controlled by a fungus. Now, uh, Matt does not know this, but I actually know about this fungus. Huh. And I, when I was um, – I'm actually very interested in this subject, of course, you know, being that I talk about it. But what's interesting is, is that this fungus had to adapt itself to control the ants. Now, you would think it was the other way around. And what it did was it figured out a way to control the brain of the ant so that it could get the ant to go high up on a plant, and there it would germinate. Now, Matt, so now I've heard different names for this fungus. Now, when I, when I learned about this, it was on a British name, yeah. Attenborough. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit about this particular one, or is there one that you feel uh, highlights – why don't we go with that – which – which one would it be that you felt would highlight uh, gross adaptations better than, than most of the other stories? You yeah, I think you, you hit it on the head. This is the one that really, really illustrates how powerful natural selection can be. Um, I'll, I'll give it an alternate, alternative one uh, after this fungus. But the current name is Ophiocordyceps. It used to be called Cordyceps, but was uh, reclassified. Okay. Yeah, so you'll find this fungus in the rainforest of South America, but they also appear up in North America, and there's subtle differences, subtle, subtle differences between the two that I'll get to in a second, but what Ophiocordyceps does is as a spore, it lands on the cuticle of an ant, and on that, it builds up kind of a bead, and in that bead, it's building up pressure roughly equivalent to the pressure in the tire of a 747 jet, which is pretty incredible. Um, all that same time, it's releasing enzymes that are starting to break down that cuticle, and the enzymes com uh, combined with the pressure actually blows the fungus into the ant's body, where it begins propagating and, and spreading throughout its tissues. Now, the interesting thing here is that it never actually gets inside the brain. It'll surround it, and it seems to be releasing chemicals as kind of this shell around the brain. What it also does is grow through the actual muscles of the ant. Uh, that's incredible because it seems to be breaking apart the neurons. So the ant no longer has control of those muscles, really. So it could, in fact, be, and this is very early stages of this research, that the fungus is now functioning as its own nervous system for the ant to gain complete control over its behavior. So what it does, as you mentioned, it, uh, after about 21 days of this infection, it guides it up to a very specific spot in the rainforest and has it bite down on the vein of a leaf, uh, those muscles in the jaw then atrophy and lock. It's kind of like our own lock jaw. And out of the out of the back of the head, the fungus grows as a stalk and then rains down the spores because, conveniently enough, the ant has been guided right above these trails that its sisters are using. So then the cycle begins all anew. So 
what's incredible is kind of tracking down the evolutionary history of this, it seems to have started by some sort of uh, insect, it was probably a beetle, eating a fungus. And from there, somehow you get the mutations that the fungus starts getting through the, 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 the wall of the stomach and starts getting into the, the beetle. But what happens when you get into a social insect like ants, uh, they have this thing called social immunity, and they need to protect themselves from things like killer funguses. So if something is acting weird, one of the sisters, someone will grab that sister, take it out of the colony, and dump it in a graveyard. Right. So the reason Ophiocordyceps had to go through this crazy evolution of being able to mind control this ant is because it would have no chances of survival inside the colony itself. So it's adapted to use an ant as a vehicle to its own ends and means. See, and that's amazing. Now, what's really – and, you know – that kind of in itself begs a question, um, because even though, of course, I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if you really want to say there's such a thing as believing in evolution, because evolution right. really is, of course, real. But when you think of things like this, and especially when you're talking about something as microscopic as, you know, well, as a fungus, um, at least in its early stages, of course, you think to yourself, well, hold on a second, how does the fungus in its microscopic stage, know that if it colony and makes itself known as that, that the sisters or the other ants won't just take it to this graveyard. It had to make that decision, or someone had to make it for it and devise in the DNA of the fungus some sort of uh, molecular uh, trigger to say, okay, go up there. At this particular point in your in your uh, cycle, in your life cycle, and do this. And you know, there's been many counters to this argument. Of course, you have where people say, "Well, this happens over generations, and it happens as as a broad, more uh, species-wide uh, change and adaptation, whereas not necessarily an individualist adaptation." So, my my question to you is, where where do you stand on call it intelligent design because then that gets into this whole whole another topic but do you feel like there may be some type of something driving these changes at this level or do you feel it's just random uh microscopic changes that just so happen to make it is it's it's the, the driving force is all about natural selection it's just such an incredibly powerful driver of evolution. What, what you're seeing is not all organisms when they're born, uh, even siblings, are exactly alike because when two parents' genes come together, they mix up in different ways. Uh, you also get mutations that slip in that make these subtle differences in organisms. And those subtle differences can actually have a giant impact uh, for survival. So if you have some individuals that are better adapted to the environment just by chance by having the right genetics, you get these humongous changes throughout evolutionary time because this builds up. The thing about nature is that it is death. It's just death, death, and more death. It sucks. Insects, insects for sure, but there's a whole <laughs> lot of death. And all that death is culling the creatures that are not best fitted to their environment. So some time ago, you had the Ophiocordyceps fungus that maybe didn't figure out how to guide, and I say figure out, uh, in, a, in a kind of a metaphorical way because there's no thinking here, but 
didn't really sure, sure. get to the point where it could drive the ant above the trail, and it let its spore go, spores go, and they didn't get into other ants, so it was done as a genetic line. Um, so it really is, this, it's not a guiding hand. You can believe in a god, that's for sure. That's fine. That's not incompatible with natural selection. But species are, are, are born because oh, of natural selection as opposed to a guiding hand. And this is what really, really rankled the time of Darwin, the, the, the Church of England, all of that, was because Darwin found a way that can just explain all of life on Earth without a higher power. And again, like I said, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be uh, believing in a God because that's totally compatible with natural selection. You just need to be able to believe that natural selection totally. is such an incredibly powerful force that it creates species. And, and I won't get into details how that happens uh, because it's not as interesting, but it's, it's a, a, just a incredible thing when you, especially going through this book and seeing how natural selection has sculpted these creatures in different ways over millennia. And it's, to me, it's just, uh, it's so humbling to know that that is going on out there all the time. And that same process has, in fact, shaped our own bodies. Wow. And you're, you're just so echoing. Exactly. Exactly, Matt. You got, you, you, you hit it right on the head, my friend. I mean, and, and, and of course, and you know, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, see, the thing is a lot of our listeners are very avid and very uh, fervent Christians and, 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 uh, and of course from other faiths as well. But, you know, and, and unfor unfortunately, and yes, guys, I'm saying unfortunately, many of, of, of them, uh, not the listeners specifically, but many people in this particular field, uh, they just want just constantly still to hammer on poor Darwin, mm -hmm. who, who's not with us anymore. And, and, you know, like you said, there is no reason why you can't have both just as long as you understand the concept of natural selection and why it, it's just it, it really is just this unbelievable transformative force. And, you know, without, I don't want to give too much uh, emphasis on, on, on the other subject, really not what we're talking about here, but getting back on topic – um, it's you, you know, with this, with this fungus, and I'm just going to say cordyceps because there's no way, uh, my, my Cuban, uh, brain can say cordyceps. <laughs> there's no way. So I'm just going to say cordyceps and I hope I'm even saying that one correctly, but, um, yep. that's just one example. Now, as far as the title of the book itself, I'm very curious about this because I know of several wasps species that do similar that do things rather with um with animals and i'm curious is this the wasp that uh, is it with the blue butterfly uh, uh species or is this another one i'm curious which one this, this one is you know the the glyptopontales which is the wasp that is, is in the title that i'm referring to uh different species actually go after different types of caterpillars i'm not familiar with one that goes after the blue caterpillar uh, butterfly but you you might be right i'm just not too familiar with it but this is yeah. This is absolutely another one of these uh, so-called zombifiers. I would love to hear some of that. I mean, of course, I wouldn't you know want you to quote the entire book because I want people to still to buy the <laughs> book. But at least this gives buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> but this at least gives people um uh, uh yeah if we could give them some some examples and and absolutely yeah that would be great. For sure. Yeah. So. Um, what scientists are, are finding is that this sort of behavioral manipulation among parasites 
is really, really common across wide-ranging sections of the tree of life. So you'll have something evolve this completely independently, and this is what happened with this wasp, uh, this family of wasps, um, uh, compared to the, the zombie ants. These wasps go about a little bit differently and maybe a little bit more diabolically. What happens is the female um, will find a caterpillar and injects up to 80 of her eggs into its living body. The eggs hatch into the larvae, they consume the juices and are careful not to consume the internal organs of the caterpillar because they need their vehicle to be in working order. They grow up, they grow fat, um, and in due time, they all erupt out of the caterpillar, but they all wriggle out of its skin. Um, and you would think that kind of trauma would be the end of the caterpillar, but what's fascinating, and it seems to be happening, is that as they're exiting, they're doing their last molt. So they're leaving behind their exoskeleton that they, they have shed that actually plugs up the wound, which allows the caterpillar to keep on living, which is good for the... Uh, the, the young wasps because they need protection. This is what this is all about. So as they spin their cocoons to start pupating, the caterpillar stays right where it is and also begins to spin its own silk over those cocoons that the wasps are building, which is incredible. You, you shouldn't, there's no reason for a caterpillar to be going out of its way to help these, these wasps. What seems to be the case is that two of the larvae have stayed behind in the caterpillar, and they might be releasing some sort of chemicals that are convincing the caterpillar to not only weave kind of a sleeping bag around the, the cocoon, but to fight off any predators that are coming to make a lunch of their sisters out there in the world, sisters and brothers. Um, so the caterpillar will actually get extremely violent toward anything approaching, say, uh, there's other wasps that are parasites of the parasite, and it'll the, the caterpillar will bat its head um, and fend off a really impressive number of predators given that it's a harmless, squishy mess of flesh. So eventually the, uh, the cocoons break open and you have these little wasps flying out in the world and only then will the caterpillar starve to death. And that's the end of this incredible life cycle. It, it was, it, it's used thoroughly by parasite. Um, that has, over evolutionary time, figured out, I say that in quotes, figured out how to manipulate a caterpillar. And what's fascinating is that there are other related wasps that don't go as far. They'll just inject their eggs into the caterpillar, and the, the larvae will hatch and consume the caterpillar from the inside out and kill it pretty much immediately. So you can actually see the steps of evolution here. What the glyptopontales might have started out is that way. And some mutations perhaps perhaps gave it more and more control over the caterpillar, which increased its fitness in this environment because it has essentially commandeered a bodyguard for its young. Right. And, and you know, you, you mentioned how certain species might have uh, found other different ways to do this. And, and what I was mentioning before about the blue butterfly well, is – it's actually uh, the endangered, uh, the Carner blue butterfly, Thieves Melissa. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, now, um, and this is really, um, well, actually, I'm sorry. Wait, I think I might, I might be saying that incorrectly. I might have the wrong. No, I'm sorry. It's the uh, the bat the the Bathurst copper, which is a Paralucia sinifera. Caterpillars, and what happens is they have these these rewards for these ants that take care of them, mm -hmm. 
and the 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 caterpillars <laughs> end up smelling like the ants' larvae, and the ants end up um, taking care of them, like they would their mm. larvae. It's just it's unbelievable. I mean, they even herd them uh, in in the bushes where the caterpillars can feed on the plants, and in the morning <laughs> the ants herd them back down into their nests. And they go out again, and, and if somebody starts trying to disturb the caterpillars, the ants will attack the intruder. And, right. and it's just unbelievable. So, I mean, you, there's so many. And, you know, it's not just small animals that this happens with. You know, I want to make sure the, uh, the listeners understand this. You know, these kinds of adaptations happen on all, ty- on all size scales of, the, of, the, of nature, you know, where you, you have arts fish who were recently discovered to have an, an antifreeze protein in their blood that prevents ice crystals from forming, you know. And it's unbelievable. Um, do you do you know of any or do you talk about in your book, Matt, can you tell us any animals possibly maybe not necessarily in the microscopic uh, insectoid world that, that you have discovered or you have uh, run into that have some of these types of in, uh, adaptations that may not necessarily be small in nature. Uh, are you talking specifically with the behavioral manipulation, or, or just, or just in general? Yeah, it, it, that or or anything related to just um, maybe environmental adaptation or or um, sexual, you know, and anything that would have to do with, you know. Using evolution to change their their framework, their biological framework, or behavioral framework. Yeah, well, I think I would be irresponsible if I didn't get into the chapter about getting enough sex in your life <laughs> in the animal kingdom. There you go. So we may as well we may as well go there and to a marsupial called Antichinus, which lives in Australia. It looks kind of like a mouse, uh, but is in fact a marsupial. What Antichinus does is a mating season of just incredible proportions. Uh, It only lasts for two weeks, and because it is so short, the males have to mate as furiously and as constantly as possible. So for two weeks, they will not eat whatsoever. They barely sleep, and they'll just run around the forest mating with as many females as possible. Now, because they're not eating and they're stressing their bodies a good amount on account of all this testosterone, bad things start happening to them. And by bad things, I mean their hair starts falling out, <laughs> and they bleed internally. Oh, my gosh. And they, some of them eventually go blind, yet they're still kind of rummaging around trying to find somebody to mate with. Uh, in the end, every single male will have died from this extreme exhaustion so now you have a forest full of females and not a single male so what's interesting here is that uh, this makes perfect evolutionary sense if you can believe it Uh, it seems that over evolutionary time the females have shortened their breeding season to coincide with the abundance of food in the springtime that's good because marsupials are born very, very underdeveloped, and the mother needs to be able to produce a whole lot of milk to keep them nourished. So not only is she hitting this at the right time, but she has 
not a single male to compete with in this forest. It is not great news for the males, but it doesn't matter because the whole purpose of being a biological entity on this planet is to reproduce, to pass down your Everything else is done in pursuit of that, eating, sleeping, finding shelter. The end game is being able to mate. And because these antichinous males have mated with perhaps dozens of different females, there's a good chance that their genes are going to get passed on to the next generation. The good news is for the females that they just get this nice peace and quiet for pretty much the rest of the year. Which I'm sure many women uh, listeners out there are saying, hey, I want some of that. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and man, I guess those uh, those antikinists, right? Is, uh, again, my Latin is, yeah. is terrible, even though uh, Spanish is crying out loud. Uh, so, I mean, I guess they, they don't need Viagra, you know, to do all that. Um, nope. Wow. This is unbelievable. And, you know, uh, in the same, you know, not to, again, I don't want to quote the entire book, but just to kind of um, uh, sum up, you know, in the same kind of topic of the sexual uh, adaptation, you have the, I think it's the trigger fish is the one where the female, the male Attaches itself to the female. Is it, is that the the fish species that they do that? That's the anglerfish. Oh, the anglerfish. I was close. So, can you can you just very you know briefly uh, uh, can you give us a little bit of information on that? Because I think the I, I would really I think the listeners would be very interested in that particular one. Yeah, this is another fascinating couple. Um, so you've probably seen the anglerfish. It's that deep sea fish with that giant mouth and the giant teeth. It looks almost spherical, and it's got that lure dangling above its head, which uh, flashes with bioluminescence to not only attract prey, but also mates in a deep. So the problem with the deep sea is that it is essentially nothingness. There's some organisms floating here and there, but you are going to have a very, very hard time finding a mate in this. So, the female has that beautiful body, the big teeth and all that, but the male anglerfish looks like a completely different species. Not even a different species, but a different kind of family of fish. It's tiny. Um, and it, it's, it's one goal in life uh, is to find a female and mate, and he doesn't eat at all. What he does is find a mate at all costs. What he's doing is he's trying to sniff her out. He actually has the biggest nostrils relative to head size in the animal kingdom. So he's sniffing her out. He's looking for a characteristic flash in her lure. And should he be so lucky in something like 99% of anglerfish males will not find a mate and will perish. But that 1% will and when he finds his mate, he doesn't just kind of slide up next to her. They release their gametes and go about their lives. He actually bites onto her side, and enzymes start breaking down his face and melding his body to her, oh, hers. Man. When that when that happens, 
uh, he also starts sharing her blood, so he's getting some sort of nutrition from it. That also links up their mating system. So whenever she beckons, she'll release her eggs, which triggers him to release his sperm, and they mix, and they just go about their lives. What happens is they will do this over the years. He'll stay there perfectly happy. He's atrophied away a lot of his features because he doesn't need them. But whenever she beckons, he'll release his sperm, and she'll actually collect several different males. I think the record is oh. eight or nine males attached to one female. Um, and this uh, just turns her into a baby-making machine. It's, it's an incredible solution to the problem of not being able to find a mate down in the, the deep. And if you find one, you sure as hell are going to hold on tight. Wow. Well, I, I, I guess the, the polygamists out there are happy about this. Yeah, you know, <laughs> brings that to a whole different uh, level. Holy cow. Ah, that's amazing. That's amazing. I, I just, you know, and, and, and just to think how many other millions of species out there are there that we haven't even found out about that have this type of thing, that have these types of adaptations. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, Matt, to, to kind of, um, and I want to tell you how how much fun I've been having with this. This is great. Um, oh, thank yeah, you. definitely. Um, just to kind of uh, culminate in this, how about us as as human beings? Do you feel that we may have, without even us knowing, or maybe we do know, have we made any type of evolutionary adaptations either to our environment, sexually, behaviorally? What what what, what do you think about that? Yeah, so that's the, the harder to tease out. You, you hear the classic of your appendix is uh, vestigial. It's, it's, it's going away slowly over evolutionary time because we don't need it in our digestion anymore. Um, but it, it's very difficult to tease those sorts of things out. But I will say that we are so magnificently adapted as human beings. And, and our, our brains are probably, of course, our, our Incredible triumph. Um, we, nothing else on the planet is able to do what we do with our brains. That said, uh, I, I want to caution against uh, thinking of the human form as something that's perfect, as an ideal. Um, there's no such thing as progress in nature. And uh, it, you get that classic, you've probably seen the classic illustration of the monkey like creature at one end and that kind of sequentially goes up to a human being that's walking upright, um, that's, that's misleading because that implies that human beings have attained this sort of ideal in the world, which just isn't true because there are so many creatures out there that are marvelously adapted to their environment. I mean, it's, it's hard to beat the complexity of the zombie ant or the glyphoponsalis wasp or even antichinus or the 
anglerfish, they are all remarkably suited in their own ways. Right. They don't get to think up cool ideas and build buildings and highways and drive cars and things like that, but they in their own way have created something through natural selection that is absolutely astonishing. I really hope that it comes through in the book that there's this wide range of creatures out there that have adapted to become absolutely bizarre, at least in, in our eyes, um, but it's important to think that they're not lower creatures because we have these big brains. They're just different. They've adapted differently. That's not to say that we're not great creatures. We are. We're, we're amazing. Um, but it's important to remember that we're not the end-all, be-all in evolution. That's, I, I couldn't agree more, and I, I think uh, I, I think anybody that really you know, comes away re- with reading this book, I think they'll enjoy it. And I highly, highly recommend it, guys. I mean, this is something we need to learn about the world we live in. And a better, and the one, of, one of the best places to learn about that is through the other animals that we share this beautiful planet with and through how they struggle and get through those struggles and how other animals get through those struggles with them or, in these cases, through them. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so, um, uh, so Matt, if anybody wants to get this book, they basically can get go to any bookstore. It's been published through Penguin, um, and it's uh, basically available at most, at pretty much most major bookstores, uh, and on Amazon or online. And um, now, are you? So you're still writing for the Wired uh, magazine, correct? I am, yeah. Okay, and so if anybody wants to find you, uh, like if they're going online in Wired, what would be the best way to find you on Wired.com? Yeah, you could just um, – you can probably just search for my name, and uh, my Twitter profile will pop up, and that has my Wired email address in it for anybody who would like to contact. Great, and what, what is your Twitter handle, if I may ask? It is Mr. Matt Simon. Okay, now Matt, yep. if you can hang on with me for a moment, uh, and sure. Okay, so guys, I want to thank uh, Matt for taking the time uh, in his busy schedule to get with us, and that's once again uh, Matt Simon, author of the Wasp that brainwashed the caterpillar, evolution's most unbelievable solution to life's biggest problems, available at bookstores and online. Get now, and thank you very much, Matt. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, so that was the, for those of you uh, listening, that was the interview between myself and Mr. Matt Simon, uh, Wired Magazine, excuse me, journalist and author of The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar. I'm showing an image of it right now on uh, ah, on uh, BitChat. And actually, if you are watching or listening, rather, on our blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift um, server, uh, you should be able to see screenshots of uh, pictures of the book and, of course, Matt himself on the slideshow. So I want to say how absolutely gobsmacked I am at how many people are watching the show right now on Bid Chat. I mean, this is awesome. I want to thank all of you guys for all the likes. The show's not over yet, so hang in there. And um, 
by the way, for any of you that are listening on Blog Talk, you want to come on over here. I think it's funny that I'm looking this way. Like, I'm actually looking at them. Uh, we're on bidchat.com slash, I think it's bidchat.com slash graveyard shift. Or if you can't find it there, just look on bitchat.com. You can look at us. I think we're on their spotlight uh, broadcast section. Anyway, so this is usually the part of the show where I um, talk about uh, the many different weird stories that there are out there. And uh, that can come to any topic. Weird is any topic. The first thing I'm going to do is uh, there's been this – you know, archaeologists are always finding these really cool things. And this rare Pictish stone with a dragon found carving was found in Orkney recently. And it was made, the find was made on Orkney's east mainland coast earlier this year. Um, the Orkney Research Center for Archaeology, uh, which Orca, with, with support from Historic Environment Scotland, rescued the relic. Now, it's known as a Pictish cross slab and it's only the third stone of this type to be found on the islands archaeologists believes it dates from the 8th century provides an insight into the early christian period on orkney the slab could be about 1300 years old from a time in scotland's past it's largely a mystery to archaeologists and historians it's really beautiful i'm going to go ahead and um share it on our twitter feed here and uh, for those of you who don't know, our Twitter feed it can be uh, accessed by going to Emmy Shift Show on Twitter.com. So enjoy uh, that. And judging, excuse me here, um, talking about ancient archaeological sites and evidence, Jesus's tomb was opened for the very first time in centuries. The original rock where uh, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was traditionally believed to have been buried in Jerusalem has been exposed to the light of day for the first time in centuries. According to an exclusive report by National Geographic, excuse me, a partner in the project at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, the original rock surface has been covered with marble slabs since at least, get this, 1555. That's the year 1555, possibly longer. The, uh, during a conservation project to shore up the shrine surrounding the tomb, a team from the National Technical University of Athens in Greece realized that they would need to access the substructure of the shrine to restore it. And, um, you know, they said that uh, some theological historians believe that um, he was buried here. And um, anyway, what ended up happening was Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, wanted to find a lot. See, during that period of time of the early uh, Christian church from the very early church in the BC around um, 326 to 300 BC, a lot of these um, you know rulers of many different countries wanted to find a lot of the artifacts. It, the world kind of you know the ancient world kind of went artifact crazy, if you will. So you know a lot of people were looking for you know a part of the original cross where Jesus was crucified or the Holy Grail or you know in this case the stone where Jesus was buried and you know that's kind of where the whole beginning of the Crusades started happening or you know certain aspects of the Crusades started happening. Well, Constantine actually sent his mother Helena as a representative to Jerusalem and locals there pointed out a cave to her where they said was the tomb of Jesus. So he had a Constantine had a shrine installed over the cave. Now the original top of the cave 
was removed, okay, so that the pilgrims could look down and see the slab where Jesus' body was said to have rested. Now, the shrine is known as the Holy Edicule, and it was last reconstructed after a fire in the early 1800s. The Holy Edicule itself sits within the Holy Sepulchre of the Church of the Resurrection, which is a famed pilgrimage site and also, by the way, working monastery. It's built directly over the cave where Jesus was buried or said to be buried. Uh, another wing sits over the site where he was also said to have been crucified. And the reason I keep saying said to have, said to be, is because quite frankly, guys, we really don't know, okay? This is all hearsay that we don't really know where specifically he was crucified or where specifically he was buried, because quite frankly, none of us was around back then. I mean, we can all believe this is where he was, you know, buried and crucified, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, because, I mean, I believe it, and, you know, and that doesn't hurt me to believe it, and doesn't hurt anybody else to believe whatever they want to believe. But my point is, there's no historical evidence saying this is exactly where he was buried this is exactly where he's crucified and a lot of you are thinking oh come on i mean why can't they have dna uh, extracted well quite frankly there was no dna at present now um for our blog talk radio listeners the show is almost over we only <laughs> got minutes left so bid chat guys stay put i am not going anywhere for you guys blog talk radio listeners i'm going to be staying on to bidchat.com if you want to keep listening in on the show, you can go to bidchat.com slash graveyard shift or just look for me, graveyard shift. I'm going to still be on there and still doing stories. How about that, huh? How about that, bid chat guys? <laughs> anyway, thank you very much on our blog talk listeners for uh, listening to the graveyard shift. Um, this is Emmy, and uh, I want to thank Matt Simon for uh, the time that he took in interviewing with us. Uh, stay tuned, guys. I'm going to be announcing our next guest. Uh, author or guest celebrity. I'm connecting with a whole bunch of people. I don't want to say their names yet because they haven't confirmed yet, but who I would like to interview are some of our old guests like Seth Shostak, Nick Redfern, maybe even uh, an author that you guys have seen on Loot Crate, Mr. John Morris, who've done, who's done the book of Reluctant Superheroes and Supervillains, and uh, hopefully we can get him on the show. So anyway, Blog Talk Radio listeners, thank you so much for listening to us here at the Graveyard Shift. This is Emmy, uh, and I am punching out for you guys. Once again, go to bitchat.com and look for us there, guys. Thank you very much. Punching out. You feel that universe? That satisfied feeling only comes from having finished a super epic, awesome episode of The Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. Hosted by your illustrious host, Emmy. Make sure to follow on blogtalkradio.com slash The Graveyard Shift and our Twitter feed, hashtag Emmy Shift Show, to stay in the loop for future episodes. Until next time, Shifties, we're punching out.